So I've learned something about our sermon text this week. It is a picture of something so awesome and so awful that it's hard to look away. And God presents that which is so awful and so awesome, both, to call us to himself. Isaiah 65. Take your copy of God's word. Turn to Isaiah 65 with me today. Last week in Isaiah 64... We heard God's prophet wrestling with the problem of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So it goes something like this. Isaiah the prophet keeps hearing God promising to deliver his people from their sin. And when Isaiah looks out at God's people, he just still sees a whole lot of unfaithfulness. And it's a conundrum. And so God, I mean, pardon me, uh, Isaiah is wrestling with this conundrum and he's sort of asking God, what are you going to do about this? You say that you're going to prom, that you, you promise that you're going to deliver us from sin, but all I see is unfaithfulness and I know my own heart, my prone to wanderness, you know your heart too. How are you going to do this? And we have to remember is that in Israel, there are two kinds of people. There's God's true servants, the humble who have a heart for God, who worship him in spirit and truth. And then within Israel, there are those who are merely religious. Uh, they have a self-styled external affiliation but no internal desire kind of religion. So within Israel, when Isaiah is looking at Israel, and when God is looking at Israel, he sees both of those kinds of people. And God is going to speak to both of those kinds of people today. By application, that speaks to all of us because within the sphere of Christianity, within those who are exposed to the gospel, those who grow up in Christian homes, those who go to church, those who read the Bible, are those people who are true people of God and then those who are merely religious, external, sort of by affiliation only, but don't have any heart for God kind of people. But they claim that they're part of Christianity. I mean, just walk down the street, ask how many of your neighbors are you a Christian, and you're going to get yes, yes, yes so many different times. Maybe a little less in our day than was just a few years ago. But there are still those two kinds of people. And so last week in Isaiah 64, Isaiah was wrestling with this conundrum and praying to God about what in the world are you going to do to deliver your people from their sin? And as part of his prayer, he asked the Lord some questions. Our sermon text today, Isaiah 65, 
are God's answers to the prophet's questions. The prophet asked a number of questions in Isaiah 64. Today, God's going to give three very clear answers. And my prayer is that we will hear those three answers because they make all the difference in this life and the next. Every one of us. True people of God and then those who are merely religious, self-styled, external affiliation, but no real internal desire kind of people. God wants us to hear his answers to the prophet's questions. So, take a look with me at Isaiah chapter 65, and in verse 1 through 5, we get God's first answer to the prophet's questions. If you were just to put your finger there and flip one page back, I think God is answering Isaiah's question that he asked in chapter 63, verse 15. When Isaiah said, oh, Lord, look down and see our situation. (laughs) See the mess that we've made. See the difficulty that we're in. And then in Isaiah 63, 15, he asked this question to God. Get this. Where are your zeal and your might? God, where are you? Where is your zeal, your passion for your people? Where is your might, your strong arm to act on your, uh, on behalf of your people? Are you going to do anything? Where are you? God's answer, number one, verse five through, verse one through five. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. God's answer, number one, to the prophet's question. When the prophet says, where's your zeal and your might for God's, for your people? God says, answer number one, I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people. If you're feeling a distance, it's not me. It's you. If you're in a jam, if you're experiencing trouble and judgment for your sin, it's not me, God says. It's you. Here in verse 1 through 5, we see God's posture toward not just his people, Israel, but all of humanity. 
And we know this because Romans chapter 10 picks this up and applies it to everyone. And then Paul specifically tears down the national and biological uh, constraints on anything that's in this text. And he says, this is Jew and Greek. This is everyone on the face of the earth. What is God's posture? Just think about this right now. If if your neighbor came up to you and said, hey, listen, uh, you're a Christian. What's God's posture toward humanity? And then especially if your neighbor said, because, you know, we've made a mess of the place and we're in a bunch. I mean, we are really bad sinners here. (laughs) What's God's posture toward humanity? Might you be thinking he's angry, he's upset, he's got a sledgehammer ready to smash humanity like a bug? Well, God says here in verse 1 through 5, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. This is like the opposite of hide and seek. God's not hiding. Here I am. What we see here in verse 1 through 5 is is God's persistent willingness. His posture toward sinners is open arms all day long. And he says, I'm doing this to a rebellious people. Then he describes the rebellious people in verse 1 through 5. So God sent Isaiah to that same rebellious people, and Isaiah's posture had to be the same as he preached the gospel to both halves of Israel. Isaiah was preaching the gospel to true Israel and merely external, self-styled, all external and no heart Israel. And God told Isaiah, you're going to have to just keep preaching and keep your arms extended to them to give them mercy and grace and gospel. But what is God's view on religious Israel? I mean, they're trying hard, right? They're just not doing it exactly right. It's the sincerity that counts, not the actual... No. Here's God's view of religion. Uh, people, verse 3, uh, first start in verse 2. Spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following what? Their own devices. So here's what happens when we make up our own religion. A people who provoke me to my face continually. And how are they provoking God? Are they murdering people? Committing adultery? No, they're sacrificing in gardens. They're making offerings on bricks. They're sitting in the tombs to commune with the dead. They're spending the night in secret places, searching for some kind of enlightenment from demonic or just otherworldly spirits. They're doing what God specifically has told them not to do with their food and their broth. And they say... To other people, stay away from me. I'm too holy for you. 
God says, these people are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns continually all the day. I, that could be taken as one of two things, either that they're in irritation and inflaming God, or smoke in the nostrils is usually a metaphor for judgment. And so he says, my, my anger is just burning to be released on them. Where's your zeal and your might, God? Here I am. My arms are spread open all day long to a rebellious. What grace? What mercy? The God of the Old Testament is not primarily a God of judgment, friends. He's the same God as the God of the New Testament. He is so gracious and merciful, slow to anger, slow to anger all day long, spreading his arms to a rebellious people. What's the problem? We're set on our own devices. We don't want to have anything to do with that God. Prophets question number two and God's answer number two. I think if you were to look back at chapter 64, verse 12, you would see that the prophet ended with uh, three rapid succession questions. And one of them was knowing all that's happening to his people, the trouble that they were in, the fact that Babylon had destroyed them and now they were carried off into captivity. The prophet asks God, Are you going to keep silent about this? Are you going to restrain yourself? And you know what the prophet was thinking, right? God, are you going to keep silent about our situation or are you going to do something about our enemies? Right? Notice God's answer in verse 6 and 7. Will you keep silent? God's answer. Verse 6 and 7. Behold, it is written before me. And I believe that those are the sins of Israel. The sins of Israel are written before me. They're black and white. There they are. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I'll measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Okay, no, wait, that's not what we were talking about. I was asking you, are you going to keep silent and restrain yourself while Babylon's beating us up over here? God says, I'm not going to keep silent about your sin. Israel's sin is written before God. When I read this, I first took it that there's something else that is written before God, and that's his own law. His own nature that brings forth his own law that says he must repay sin. That even though he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in steadfast love, right? But I will not. Or, but I will repay into, um, for sin, whatever it is there in, in Exodus chapter 34. I will repay. So, however you take that, 
It's God's nature and God's law that requires justice against evil. So these two first answers are not not looking very hopeful here. I spread out my hands to rebellious people. God's answer number two, I will not keep silent, but I will repay your sin into your lap. God's answer number three, verses eight through twenty-five. I think, again, if you were to look up at chapter 64, verse 12, that rapid succession of three quick rhetorical questions. Look back there at 64, 12. What's the last one? Will you afflict us so terribly? Will you afflict us so terribly? God's answer comes in three parts in a long section. 8 through 25. I had originally slated this to be two sermons because every time you Google search Isaiah 65, I dare say you go to a conference and somebody's preaching on Isaiah 65, it's always going to be Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of new creation. And what a wonderful glory it is. It's, it's our hope. It's, it's the sustenance of our joy. It's the fuel for our worship. We're going to see that at the end of our sermon here. But Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 isn't disconnected from Isaiah 65, 1 through 16. Isaiah 8, through 25 is another one of those classic Isianic chiasms. And in my opinion, the chiastic structure is undeniable. It's mathematically and linguistically impossible for this to just happen. And not only is it undeniable, but it's significant, even though I couldn't find a single commentator who brought it out and seemed to recognize it. And while almost every sermon or reference to Isaiah 65 is always about the new creation and the cool kinds of things about the millennium that it might answer or questions that it might create, this chiasm is one unit that contrasts two destinies. And guess those, guess who those two destinies are for? The two different parts of Israel. A destiny for those who are the true servants of God and a destiny for those who are the merely religious, external, self-styled, we're doing our own thing kind of people. I want you to notice, before we read this chiasm, 8 through 25, I want you to notice that the structure articulates and emphasizes what God will do, first in judgment, second in salvation. The structure, the chiastic structure, remember that's that poetic form that goes out and comes back A, B, C, C, B, A, 
emphasizing this middle, but both of these structures, and I showed them there on your note sheet, they emphasize judgment and salvation. But I also want you to notice that God leads before he ever gets into it. God does not lead with judgment. He leads with grace in salvation. This is so important, friends. God leads with grace. God always leads with grace. God has been leading with grace since the foundation of the world. And no matter what your view of God is, God is leading with grace still today for you right now. But while he leads with grace, the emphasis is actually on you. You who? Here in this room, you. Wait a minute, me? We just talked about within Israel, there's two kinds of people, right? True servants, and then those who are merely religious. The emphasis of this entire section is on you who have forsaken the Lord. You've been part of God's within the realm, the sphere of God's covenant and God's truth all of your life. But you, I want to talk to you who have forsaken the Lord. So God emphasizes those who are merely religious, doing their own thing. All right. With that little bit of introduction, let's read this chiasm in verse 8 through 25, and then I'm going to go back and do my best to explain and apply some things. So this is God's third answer to a prophet's question where the prophet, I believe, asks, are you going to afflict us so terribly? Like, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to end? God's answer in three parts. Verse 8 through 25. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains, my chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Verse 11, But you, who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Verse 13, therefore, 
Thus says the Lord. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives out but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. Or the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains says the Lord. And all God's people said, 
even as I read that, did you hear the repetition of certain themes? Go home and look at these words and see if you don't see a clear, undeniable, mathematically and linguistically impossible happenstance, but a clear chiasm where God takes it out, starting with his holy mountain and his call and joy and gladness and former things being forgotten. And then God says, I'm going to create everything new. And when he describes everything new, guess what he does? He brings it back saying former things aren't going to be remembered. Joy and gladness is going to be the mark of my new creation. And before they call on me, I'll answer them. And then he ends it with what it's going to be like on his holy mountain. So let's take a look at this chiasm. The prophet's third question was, are you going to afflict us so terribly now that you're not going to be silent about our sin? You're going to repay our sin? Does that mean that we're all going to be destroyed? God gives three answers. Look back at verse 8. Verse 8. First, I will not destroy them all, but I'm going to bring forth offspring from Jacob to possess my holy mountain. Now, you're going to have to care about actually studying Scripture to follow along and really kind of wring this thing for some meat for you today. But look at this first response in verse 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, just like when the vine dresser goes out and sees some grapes, the very first ones that happen to be the prize grapes, it's called new wine, that are just oozing bursting before everything else. It's like the most exquisite wine possible. They take them and they say, don't destroy this. Just get this stuff. God says, I'm not going to destroy my people, but I'm going to do what? I'm going to bring forth. I'm going to give birth to offspring from Jacob. Do you see that there in verse 8? I will not destroy them all. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, that's Israel, and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. So God says, I'm not going to destroy everyone. I am going to have a remnant. And that's been something that he's been telling us since the very beginning of of Isaiah chapter 1, right? God is going to preserve his remnant. And all along, just as a, as a reminder, do you remember how he preserves the remnant? He's, he says, my people are like a vine that's born sour, useless grapes. So he cuts it down, but he saves what? The stump and the root of Jesse, which is Jesus Christ. Now that stump and root is going to produce what? New fruit. God says, I'm going to create a whole new people from the stump, the root. My son, my servant, my king, my warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
the second part of God's third answer. But. Verse 11. But. You who forsake the Lord. That half of. Christianity. That half of Israel. That's merely external self-styled. Doesn't really care about God. Just kind of calls themselves. Religious. You who have turned your back on the Lord, you who forget my holy mountain, you who set a table for fortune. Can you see them doing some pagan, kind of adopting paganism into their religious practices? They set a table for fortune. They fill cups of wine for destiny. He says, what's your destiny going to be? Verse 12, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow to the slaughter. I know that's awful. And if you have somebody that you love very dearly who has walked away from the Lord to think about them being destined to the sword, destined to death, and bowing to the slaughter can only be described as the greatest agony and burden of your own heart. But friends, to a God who holds out his arms all day long to a rebellious people. And they purposefully forsake him. Do their own thing. Can we not agree that this is the glory of God through judgment for sin and evil? He says, you forgot my holy mountain. And now you will be destined to the sword. You ignored my call, verse 12. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But what did you do? What was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in? Friends, within this room, just the four cement block walls of this room, let alone within the church, let alone within Israel back then in 700 B.C., God has been calling. And we in our sin have been ignoring God, have we not? And ultimately, yes, God is sovereign over salvation. But friends, We cannot deny that we are responsible. We are absolutely responsible to respond to God's call. And here in this room, every single man and woman, boy and girl, I can say along with Romans chapter 10, that God through the gospel of Jesus is calling you today. Repent from your sin, come to Jesus and God will forgive your sin. He doesn't just forgive it, he forgets it. And he will make you part of his people who will enjoy the new creation for all of eternity. Will you respond? Will you? Have you? If not, friend, that's on you.
And what God describes here on the downward axis of the chiasm, he describes the judgment against those who forsake him as being the opposite of everything that he planned for his people. Did you notice that? How God describes judgment. He doesn't just say, I've destined you a sword and I'm going to tell you how bad it is. When God tells us how bad it is, he always says, my servants are going to be like this. Like, here's what you could, but you will be like this. But my servants, my people, those who will respond to the call, my chosen ones, the ones whom God has chosen, and they have chosen him. But you? So look, you forgot my holy mountain, you ignored my call. Number three, verse 13 and 14. You will never experience joy and gladness. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my servants, they're going to eat. How about you? Hungry. They're going to drink. You're going to be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you're going to be put to shame. Behold, my servants are going to sing for gladness of heart, but you? You will cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. And you, verse 15 and 16, you along with all of the former things are going to be forgotten. Verse 15 and 16, you're going to leave your name, your legacy, your name, you're going to leave it as a curse. But his servants are going to be called by another name, a name we don't deserve. So that in the land of Israel, it's only one kind of people. The people who claim and swear by God and live by God and it's true religion, secure, steadfast forever. The former troubles are going to be forgotten and are, I love that last phrase, hidden from my eyes. So God's third answer. I'm not going to destroy them all. I will bring forth an offspring from Jacob to possess my mountains. But you who forsake the Lord, I will destine you to death. And the third part, verse 17 through 25, the second half of the chiasm, mirroring, cannot deny it. Don't even try to tell me it's separate, commentator. I got one. Great big book. Costs like 50 bucks. Guy says, this has nothing to do with it. There's only a few little things. What are you talking about? This is mathematically, linguistically impossible to have this kind of mirror image. And so what does God say last? I create the new heavens and the new earth. What is God going to do? He says, I'm not going to destroy you all. I am going to create a new offspring. I will destine those who forsake me to death and I create new. New heavens, new earth, verse 17. And it's in reverse. We see it going from former to joy and gladness, call back to God talking about his mountain. 
So let's look at this, verse 17 through 25. And yeah, the coolest part about Isaiah 65. I create new heavens and the new earth. Just like I'm going to judge those who forsake me, I am going to create everything new for those who are my true servants. Everything new. How new? Verse 17b, and this instructed me. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. What are we going to do in eternity? What are the former things? Part of the new heaven and the new earth is that everything former, it's not remembered. It doesn't even come to mind. What mercy. So it's not just that our sins are not remembered, but this old life is not remembered. And as God already said in verse 15 and 16, those who refused him, who forsook him, I think, are not remembered. How devastating. How final. But I think that's the only way that I will be ever able to live in eternity with all of the non-Christians that I love deeply not being there. Former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. What's the mark of the new? Verse 18 through 23. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Listen, the new heavens and new earth. Three times and in prolific language, God says it's all about joy and gladness. (laughs) Look at verse 18. Verse A, it's for our joy. 18b, it's to be a joy. And 19, it's for God's joy. It's all about joy and gladness. And and God says, I want you to rejoice and be glad because of what I've got in store for you. By the way, I'm creating it to be a joy. Now, when we think of this, are we thinking of just heaven over there? Are we remembering that this new creation is the gospel of Jesus that is already being created because God has created a new people right here and right now. We are the new Israel. We are God's true people who are new people. God created a new community in the church. And he says, it's for your joy Number two, it is created to be a joy. Friend, that's our mission statement. Make that your number one to-do list this week. Go, be a joy. (laughs) That's why God created, that's why God saved you to be a source of joy for your kids, your wife, your neighbors, the whole world. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a source of joy. as well as this forever home. And then, verse 19 through 23, the blessings of the new creation can only be best described as the absence of what we experience here under the curse. So verse 20, 
no more infants who die. No more old men who don't live out their days. So the blessings of the new creation, verse 19 and 20, is no more weeping, no more death. And verse 21 through 23, no more enemies who come in and tear down what you build, eat the food that you planted, and mess up your whole life's work. So look there in verse 21 through 23, what you see baked there. Basically right there is the blessed life, according to the average Israeli. The blessed life, verse 21, you're going to build houses and inhabit them. You're going to plant vineyards and actually eat your own fruit. They're not going to be built and somebody else inhabit it. They're not going to plant and somebody else eat it. The days of a tree are like the days of my people. And Lost my place. There you go. And you're going to long enjoy the work of your hands. They're not going to labor in vain or bear children in calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. All right. Does this bring up a whole bunch of questions about the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth? Because it talks about some kind of sinner guy right here and then bearing children. Oh, yeah. Lots and lots of questions. But friends, that's not why this is here. Don't get caught up with all of the interesting uh, interesting nuances of this text and miss that God is promising judgment and salvation and that God stands with his arms wide open all day long to a rebellious people. I got to hurry. Verse 24, look at this. He comes back with another one of those chiastic themes. And instead of this time, God calling and either you answering or not answering. In the new kingdom, God's people will enjoy a relationship with the Lord that is so intimate that note these prepositions. Before they call, he answers, and while they're still speaking, he will hear. Friends, That's an intimate relationship with a loving father who doesn't exist to take care of your needs but loves doing it. Verse 25, I create a new heaven and new earth. What's it going to be like? Well, my mountain, in my mountain, banished. Death is banished forever. Nothing destroys anything in God's holy mountains. Predators are going to graze with prey instead of on them. It's the complete reverse of the curse. And it's the complete restoration of shalom. That's the new heavens and the new earth that God promises to his people. And that God holds out to those who forsake him. So let me close very, very quickly by asking ourselves the question, what's the message for us? If this is to two kinds of people, and that means there's two kinds of people in this room, then what's the message for those who presently forsake the Lord? If you're here and you presently are not willing to follow 
the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not willing to bow and surrender your heart to God for whatever reason, whatever sin you're holding on to, whatever lifestyle that you refuse to let go of, whatever area you refuse to, to obey in, what is the message for those who presently forsake the Lord? Look at God's work to save us from all of the devastating consequences of our own way. Look at it. Go back and read Isaiah 65. Just look at what God has done to save us from ourselves and then respond to God's call. Friends, he's still calling you. And he's calling you through the Lord Jesus Christ. God loved this world so much that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. And the Lord Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. In Jesus, we find forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Respond to the call today. When Peter preached this, he said, repent and be baptized. Let's talk about that. That's how you respond. You repent of your sin. Turn your back on it. Turn to Jesus and be baptized in his name. That's the message for those who presently forsake the Lord. And and he's gone to great pains to show you what you're missing out on and, and the devastating, the awful judgment of our sin. What's the message for those who are God's servants? I got a whole page full. I'll, I'll spare you. The message for those who are God's servant, if you're here and you know that by God's grace, you've been saved from sin and you're, you're walking, following the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65 causes us to worship, doesn't it? Have you felt your heart just worshiping because of what God has done to save a sinner like you? I mean, God called you. That's grace. God didn't repay your sin like we deserve. That's grace. God gave birth to you. That's his sovereign grace in action. And then God created a new heaven and new earth for your joy. Grace upon grace. That just causes us to worship him in humility. By the way, that's next week's sermon. Who gets to enjoy this? The humble. Not only does it cause us to worship, but it fuels our joy when we recognize that everything that God has done through the gospel of Christ is for our joy so that we can be a joy and for God's joy. Maybe that'll help me with my grumpies. And then finally, it solidifies our hope. And I don't just mean it makes heaven more concrete. I mean that it makes, it helps me to understand that I'm not waiting for anything except for full final consummation of what God has promised. Everything that's in here in in Isaiah 65, we already possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already got it. 
all of these promises, just think about this. Through the gospel, our former sins, troubles, and things, they're not remembered. We don't have to wait till heaven for that. Through the gospel, our destiny is the restoration of shalom. We eat and drink and rejoice and sing and have a new name. There is no more need to weep. There is no more fear of death. It's already settled. Our destiny is settled through the gospel. Our work, listen to this, our work will endure and bear fruit forever. We can build every day, mom and dad, you can build and plant the gospel in your kids' lives, and no enemy can ultimately have victory over what you are building and what you are planting. We can build and plant with the gospel on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ with the promise that what we build and plant will not be destroyed but will endure and bear fruit for eternity. Does that mean that everyone in whom we plant the gospel will be saved? No. But does that mean your work to plant and to build will be destroyed if they don't come? We have the promise that our work will endure. Through the gospel, our relationship with the Lord right here, right now is so intimate that before we call, he answers. Let that motivate you to prayer. And finally, through the gospel, death has been destroyed. Nothing can destroy you anymore. Friend, you can live with no fear of death right now. Isaiah 65 is the gospel of Jesus Christ through judgment and salvation. And I hope that we hear it today. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word through your prophet. And wow, it's a lot. And I just pray that you would please teach us and help us sift through the difficulties and nuances of all this stuff and And stick to the main things so that we really understand what you're telling us today. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a good work in those who are presently forsaking you. That Isaiah 65 would show them the awfulness of judgment so that they see the awesomeness of the gospel. The awfulness of their sin so that they see the awesomeness of your grace. Please do a good work in everybody who hears this text today. And then I pray for every Christian that you would, that you would cause us to worship you and fuel our joy and solidify our hope so that we live new lives as new people right here on this old earth until the day that we step foot into the new heavens and the new earth. May we do it so that we can be a joy for those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.